Hi, welcome to the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. My name's Annie and my pronouns are she or they. And I'm Frankie and my pronouns are he, him. Gendered Intelligence is a charity that works to increase understandings of gender diversity and help improve the lives of all trans people. Our vision is of a world where people are no longer constrained by narrow perceptions and expectations of gender and where diverse gender expressions are visible and valued. If you're interested in supporting Gendered Intelligence or to find out more about our youth work, volunteer scheme, educational and professional services, please visit genderedintelligence.co.uk or follow us on our Twitter at genderintel. In this episode, we hear from people working with the criminal justice system to develop policy and support those who live within these systems. Michelle Brewer is a barrister with specialities in human rights and experiences representing trans prisoners. And then we have Chrissy Hunter, who's representing the Bent Bars Project, who are a grassroots letter-writing project responding to the need for stronger connections and solidarity between LGBTQ people inside and outside prison walls. Content warning for this episode. There are mentions of sexual assault and suicide and discussions about transphobia. at Garden Court Chambers and I specialise in public law um, and that's essentially my job usually is to sue various government departments on behalf of individuals so that's in lay terms fun 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 keeps us busy um, but I'm also a co-founder of Telly which was a trans equality legal initiative um, it was an initiative set up by Tara and I and a few others, which was really to create a collective of lawyers, academics, quality and diversity individuals, and representatives from civil society to start looking at using the law to for a strategic advantage for the trans community and to start trying to change the narrative that we're seeing in legal judgments and really just to try and bring some empowerment to a community that I think are, are badly represented currently in our jurisprudence. Um, and one of the areas that I work in and one of the things that I do is I represent trans prisoners. Um, usually where the, I would say the, the prison services have fallen foul of their own policy and so I usually take that case to the High Court and, and argue either that the policy is unlawful or that they fail to apply policy. And so what I thought I'd do in the very short snapshot, and, and given that I was told about two hours ago that I was going to do this talk, um, I thought I'd give you a, a kind of oversight really of where I think there's problems. But I didn't want to start just with that, because I think actually it's important to recognise that this is a really good policy, actually. And I say that from someone who's usually challenging government policy, but I represent trans individuals who are detained in the Immigration Detention Service, and I can absolutely tell you that the policy that's applied to them is a very, very poor cousin of this policy. And, and so I, I come from this saying that I think it's an excellent policy. I think there's unfortunately a real disconnect in how it's applied in practice, but I think it's a very good starting position. And why we keep seeing policy, why it's really important just to take a step back is that Public officials have to apply published policy. If they don't, it's unlawful and we take them to court. And so it's a really powerful instrument. And the fact that they put so much work into it to get the language right, to get the duties right, I think is something that needs to be endorsed and supported because we're in difficult times. And the last thing I want to do is knock something which I think is actually in a good a good starting point, really. 
But I wanted to maybe give an example of a stark example, really, of, of where there's a real disconnect. Um, Tara did a wonderful training at a very, very well-known prison. I won't name it. But uh, she kindly invited me and another human rights lawyer along. I'm, I'm not sure if the prison staff knew there were human rights lawyers in the room, but that was fine. Um, and it was uh, a quality and diversity training looking at uh, how to manage care management of trans prisoners. And it was training before this policy had come out. So it was looking at the old policy, but letting them know a new policy was coming. And it was quite, it, it was for the healthcare professionals in, in this prison, and it was for the prison staff, and the governor was in attendance. And as part of Tara's training, which was fantastic, is she showed a clip of Tara Hudson, whose case is quite well known, a, a trans woman who was held in a, pri in a prison estate, I think it was in Bristol. And it was about Tara's experiences in prison held in a male estate. And at the end of it, I posed a question to the prison guards and being around the governor was in the room. And I said, um, let's be, let's just cut to the quick. Would you want her on your wing? I wouldn't <laughs> want her on my wing. Why would you want her on your wing? That is going to cause serious disruption. And his response in front of the governor was, well, she won't do that again, will she? And I said, well, we don't prison, we, we, some of our sentencing isn't sexual abuse. It isn't sexual exploitation, it's a rape. That's not what we sentence people to. Um, but the fact that a prison officer could say that in the presence of their governor, and the governor didn't blink an eyelid, in a very well-known prison estate where they were holding trans prisoners, one of whom was my client at the time, really speaks to a couple of issues. But the biggest issue is, is if you do not have the appetite from on high, if you do not have the appetite from the governors to create a cultural shift and to protect the dignity of all the prisoners that are held in that st estate, if you do not have that, irrespective of how beautiful this policy is, and I have to say it's a bloody good policy, no matter how powerful you, you put the dictator down in that policy, it will be breached and money will be spent on instructing me to go to the high court saying, why have you screwed up on the policy again? You had the policy, you didn't apply it. Um, and the starkest cases, a colleague of mine did the case of Vicky Thompson. She represented the family of Vicky Thompson in the inquest. Seriously. And that was, you know, we, it, I, I think we really need to recognize and, and grapple. And the MLJ does need to grapple with that there needs to be a culture shift and there needs to be money where there is no money. And we need to recognize that the prison service is on its knees, not just for trans prisoners, for everyone. It is on its knees. It is paralyzed. And, but what that means is the most vulnerable in prison, women, women with mental health issues, members of the trans community, the youth, are going to be the most at risk. And so that's, despite starting out saying what a lovely policy, I assume that is doomsday. But so my... So I think really that that needs to be acknowledged. Whether it's, I, I don't care if they acknowledge it internally and don't tell me about it. I don't care. <laughs> but acknowledge it and take it on board. Um, and I think also recognise that it, as a policy, it's bedding down and it is a, it's a very good policy, but it does have its problems. And it has its problems because at its heart, it requires 
individuals to advocate for themselves because they will often not have legal representation once they become serving prisoners. It's different if you're a remand prisoner, but bearing in mind those prisoners on remand will have criminal solicitors, criminal barristers. It's not they don't do what I do. They're not going to look and analyse the policies that are relevant to the holding of that prisoner. That's not what their job is. And so you're expecting a vulnerable cohort within a fun, vulnerable group, and I do consider offenders vulnerable for various reasons, you're, you're going to expect them to advocate for themselves in things like case review boards, where some of them may have problems with literacy, some of them may have other intersectional issues, which means they're going to find it very difficult to advocate for themselves. And it's going to be quite a scare. Imagine you're asking someone who may have been transitioning in the community, who may have been questioning in the community, and suddenly you put them in a prison estate, trans woman, male prison estate, and you're expecting her to advocate to express her gender identity and what we know is a very dangerous environment for LGBTQI prisoners. Um, and, and so I think that that expectation, we need to create safeguarding within that policy to actually make sure that individuals can advocate for themselves because that's where I am seeing the real lacunas actually is that they cannot advocate for themselves but also that the staff are not really knowing what they're supposed to be doing this trans case review board if they don't even know the language if i'm reading a review board minute which i have done and they're misgendering my clients and yet they're supposed to be making the decision on transferring where do you start with that where do you start with that or as we often have questioning well this prisoner sometimes wants to be called she but then says they want to be called he and then they're not going to change the name you think why do they not want to change their name why do they not want to be waltzing around a wing with female pronouns and a female name? You know, take a moment, mate, and think about it. And all of those things require intense training in a resource-strapped environment. A resource-strapped environment where the inspectors come out and said, these, none of these spaces are safe for anyone. So I think that and what worse needs to happen? We keep having suicides. What more, you know, the, 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 what ne needs to happen more? Because when we get it wrong, we get it badly wrong. You know, the elephant in the room, Karen White case. That was a risk assessment case. That, that's what that was. And, 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 and that, again, speaks to the problem of resourcing. Again, you know, unless, unless we deal with that, we are going to continue to have significant problems managing very vulnerable people in whatever estate you place them. Um, so ultimately for me, I think we have a brilliant starting position in this policy. I think that the, and I think we have very different, I have to say from the Home Office when dealing with immigration, you have a government department that wants to engage and has actually engaged and put the money where the mouth is on engagement, and I think that needs to be acknowledged because I can tell you not, you are not going to get that with a lot of government departments, and you do have that. But the question we need to sit back and think is, even with that, how can we affect real change for very vulnerable prisoners now? And I, I mean, that would be an interesting question, I think, from Chrissy's perspective, from Jay's, because I don't have that answer. Well, I do have that answer, money, actually. Loads of money. Loads of resources, thinking about the entire, well, Chrissy's going to talk about that, but the entirety of our prison system, <laughs> all the problems that 
we have there. I mean, these are bigger issues. So, um, really, that's all I've got to say on the shoots. But doomsday, apologies. Uh, that's what you get for only giving me two hours' notice. I could put some happy stuff in, but I didn't have time. Um, so, really, that's. I'm going to hand over now to Chrissy. Uh, my name's Chrissy Hunter, and I'm actually I'm part of the GI board as well. But I'm giving I'm, I'm taking this presentation um, as a member of the Bent Bars Project, um, and I'm going to give an overview of the situation of trans people in the criminal justice system, and suggest that their experiences need to be considered in relation to the broken nature of the entire system and considerations of meaningful justice. So we've done some detail. We've done we've done broader. I'm going to go broader. Uh, the Ben Bass Project is a letter writing or pen pal project for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer plus prisoners in Britain. We were founded in 2009 responding to a clear need to develop stronger connections and build solidarity between LGBTQ plus communities inside and outside prison walls. We're a grassroots independent project and we do not accept funding for or sponsorship from corporations or anyone connected to the criminal justice system. To ensure that people who engage with our projects have confidence that they're interacting with people who have truly independent voices. Um, we're in weekly contact with LGBTQ plus people in prisons through letters and have a direct and realistic understanding of many of the problems they face, not filtered through third party interpretation, although sometimes censored. There have been a number of cases in this decade that have either attracted significant media attention and so-called successful campaigning, which have demonstrated or highlighted the problematic issues within the criminal justice system towards trans, non-binary and sexually under non-conforming people. If we take the cases of trans women, there are a number of complexities to consider. The Ben Biles Project understands from direct interaction with incarcerated people that prison is sometimes the first time that they have felt able to confront their own feelings of dysphoria and maybe the first time that they have felt able to come out to themselves, let alone to others. So we have an idea of a trans prisoner, but trans prisoners come in many, many different shapes and many different sizes. We receive letters from people who tell us how they feel about themselves who feel they can't tell anyone else in their immediate environments in prison. We also know that trans people regularly have difficulty getting the treatments they're entitled to under the prison uh, service instructions of the care and management of transgender offenders, despite the regulations being supposed to guarantee their rights. There are a number of different reasons for this, amongst which are disbelief, apparent phobia, imposition of unrealistic and or normative requirements, and invidiously security. Trans women in the male estates are regularly denied provision of their basic rights, such as being referred to in the correct name and gender, and being given access to appropriate clothing, cosmetics, toiletries, and where required hair and breast prosthetics on the grounds of simple security. But the cases of trans women that excite the most contestation are those to do with their being placed in the female estate, whether they're placed there on conviction or transferred from the male estate. Suffice it to say here that the evidence perhaps unsurprisingly suggests that the most legible or normative expressions of transness are those taken most seriously, and those most challenging from a hetero or perhaps trans normative position 
are those least likely to receive the support they're legally entitled to. There's also a class of cases sometimes referred to as the sex by deception cases, people convicted of gender fraud. These cases, stretching back to 2012, have involved claims by non-trans women that they've been deceived by people sometimes with categorical male identities, sometimes more fluid or liminal identities, who've presented or been convicted as having presented as male, deceptively, on account of their being assigned female at birth, but not having explicitly declared their assignation. This suggests that all trans and non-binary people should have to make such a declaration before they have sex with anyone for the first time. These cases highlight that the problems with the interactions that trans and non-binary people have with the criminal justice system, the playing field is uneven, but it's really not a game for people caught up in a net of heteronormative and transphobic judgments. Part of the mainstream conviction about trans prisoners involves making claims about the high number of trans women who are incarcerated for sexual offences. This claim is extrapolated to prove that trans women, if placed in the female estate, pose a necessary and particular threat to other non-trans prisoners, and has been intensified by the recent high-profile case of a trans woman being convicted of sexual assault in a woman's prison. Let us be clear about the statistics. Anti-trans feminists have used government statistics to claim that there are 125 trans people, by implication they mean trans women, in prison in England and Scotland, 100 in the male estate and 25 in the female estate, and that 41% of these people have been convicted of sexual crimes against women, which on the face of it does seem like a high percentage. In fact, the Ministry of Justice themselves accept these figures are not an accurate representation of the number of trans people in prison. The figure of 125 represents prisoners who have declared their trans status and, as I've already stated, we're aware that many trans people do not do so. Those who have had a case conference, as all trans prisoners are entitled to, but again, as the Bank Bias Project are aware, not all are given early access to, excluding those serving shorter sentences who are less likely to have been convicted of sexual offences anyway. It doesn't include any trans people, prisoners who have a GRC, which gives them formal anonymity in most day-to-day contexts. So the statistics used to emphasise the danger posed by trans women in prison have been manipulated to exaggerate the danger. And they also take no account of the fact that trans people are one of the most vulnerable populations of prisons, which are by their nature violent and dangerous places anyway. We should also consider who in women's prisons constitutes a danger. There's clear evidence that male guards are a regular source of abuse within prisoners. The Howard League reported examples of coercive sex between female prisoners and male guards, and the claims against guards at Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre, which houses some of the most vulnerable people in the UK. There is, of course, evidence that trans women do assault other people, including women. My claim here isn't that we should consider all trans people harmless, but there are far more assaults on non-trans women by other non-trans women, and the claims about the dangers posed by trans women to other women fail to take account of the legal obligation of the state to ensure the security of all prisoners in their care at all time. Safeguarding procedures are in place, but they fail, and their failure is not confined to cases of trans women. These failures need to be seen in the context of a generally failing criminal justice system, 
and also in the broader context of the withdrawal of the social safety net as a result of neoliberal policies associated with the discourse of austerity. The regulations which govern the treatment of trans prisoners referred to above were reviewed and came into force at the beginning of last year. And there are changes that, amongst other things, discuss non-binary prisoners for the first time. Um, I focus here on a section that tells us that allocation of prisoners to the appropriate estate should be based on a more flexible approach to location within parts of the prison or approved premises, which will be applied to transgender offenders who can demonstrate consistent evidence of living with the gender they identify with. I understand this to mean a new approach is to be adopted, replacing a less inflexible reliance on only allocating prisoners on the basis of the possession of a GRC. So a person's lived sex gender history is now to be taken account of, which if managed sensitively is potentially supportive for some prisoners. Non-binary people's identities are also recognised for the first time, it isn't clear to me what that will ha what impact that will have in the highly bi-gendered regimes of the criminal justice system. But whatever good intentions motivated these revisions, they're generally being thwarted by a conflation of circumstances. Trans and non-binary people are judged by standards that aren't our own. Other non-trans, binary identified people set the standards that we have to achieve. While trans people were involved in helping draft these new regulations, their interpretation and implementation falls mainly on people who are not members of our communities, working within a structurally and endemically transphobic heteronormative system. This disadvantages and devalues claims made by trans and non-binary prisoners about their own self-understandings and therefore the access they're allowed to the provisions made for them within the regulations. The issue of trans women in prison in mainstream discourse is reduced to the potential they're deemed to possess as violent predators, rather than taking account of the cultural, psychological and physical violence visited on them on a daily basis. Claims about transness in the criminal justice system are inevitably refracted through a white Western lens. This disadvantages people whose sense of sex gender self is informed by their non-Western or non-white cultural backgrounds. The issue of trans prisoners is also one in which people are often reduced from being considered as socially, culturally complex individuals to mere ciphers of transness. This is not helpful, but we also need to consider the issues that arise out of a consideration of the criminal justice system itself and what impact they have on trans and non-binary people within the system. So, Ben Blas Project argues that the criminal justice system is a space which intensifies rather than reduces the potential for violence. As year-on-year -year statistics demonstrate, UK prisons are increasingly dangerous places for the incarcerated and especially for the most vulnerable. Also talk to any people who work within the prison system and examine the retention rates for prison staff and you'll be convinced that this environment's precarious containment, underwritten with daily incidents of violence and high levels of self-harm, has a profound impact on them as well. Any examination of the demographics of incarcerated people in the UK will draw the inevitable conclusion that the system is racist, takes no account of people's mental health disadvantages or special educational needs, is extremely classist, incarcerates people with special needs arising from their reliance on alcohol or narcotics, 
and incarcerates a huge number of people of all sex genders who represent no physical danger to people at all. And underlying all of this is the troubling question of a fundamental societal lack of agreement and therefore of clear thinking about the very meaning of justice. To be quite clear, we believe that this impacts victims at least as much as perpetrators, but until we invest far more time, energy, intellect and resources in communitarian solutions to antisocial and violent behaviour, we will never break the cycles of violence and dysfunction which propel people into a relentless entrapment in the criminal justice system. I've covered a lot of ground here, <laughs> and there's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm going to close by saying that notwithstanding what I've said about prevailing conditions in the criminal justice system, the Bent Bars Project recognises there are many people working within it who are bravely and actively struggling to support trans and non-binary prisoners. There are individual prisoners, there are LGBTQ groups, such as Blue Voices, who reach out to trans people in prison. There are committed members of staff and people who carry out education in prison who try their best to support trans people. There is a legal and clinical structure that in theory should support trans and non-binary people, and we only have this because some people cared enough to invest time and energy in developing the documents and arguing them into existence. I'm going to finish with a quote from Women in Prison and a comment on it. They say they believe in the need to take account of the more positive outcomes around non-custodial sentencing, but more importantly, what we see as the drivers to criminalise people, which are class-based and prejudice-fueled. Racism, mental health, lack of secure housing or childcare, substance abuse, migrants, asylum seekers, people who have been abused. As a first step, as a society, we need to move to a place of care, re-erect a social safety net that works, and re-educate ourselves to understand that people who feel valued and cared for have a greater chance of flourishing in the world. This doesn't directly reference trans and non-binary issues, but if we think about these issues in terms of the abuse and discrimination trans and non-binary people suffer, and the intersectional disadvantages often suffered by poor trans and non-binary people, trans and non-binary people of colour, trans and non-binary people with mental health issues, and otherwise intersectionally disadvantaged trans and non-binary people. In addition to taking account of the specific issues of transphobia, non-binary, erasure and heteronormativity, and what Alex Sharp refers to as an ontological violence, then it seems reasonable to suggest this should be the grounded starting point for trans and non-binary activism within the criminal justice system. Don't say for a reform of the system that clearly doesn't work, we need an entirely new approach towards our system of justice. been listening to the transforming spaces podcast thanks for listening and if you want to continue this conversation or you have any points to add we'd be really interested to hear your views um, so do please tweet us at at gender intel <laughs>